nice to see you here today. Uh, if you're visiting, we're glad you're here. It's especially nice to see Mr. and Mrs. Andrew O'Donohue with us. So, well, let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for giving us Jesus as our Savior and in him all that we need for life and godliness. We pray now that you'd help us as we look at your word, change us by it, uh, encourage us, Lord, to walk with you more faithfully. Uh, show us our sins, move, us, move in our hearts so that we repent of them, and make us a blessing to one another, we ask. We pray all these things with thanksgiving in Jesus' name, amen. Bill Gates, Warren Buffett are billionaires. Now, you know how it is when you're a billionaire. Well, maybe you don't. So let me tell you a little bit about what I've read about billionaires. Um, they hobnob together, and in the case of Gates and Buffett, they got together and decided to create an opportunity for other billionaires to give. And it's called the Giving Pledge. Anybody here? Have heard of it? One person. Maybe a couple people. Well, that shows you how many billionaires we might have in the audience here. Well, this is how the pledge works. You're asked, as a billionaire, if you would be willing to give half of what you possess for philanthropic purposes. And use the rest for yourself, and, and you can give either now or leave it in your will, but live on a lower standard than you currently do. Warren Buffett says that he has called a number of billionaires, and to this, I mean, you can check this online, but um, to date, there are, I believe, 240 billionaires who have signed the pledge, and they come from 29 different countries. Now, uh, as Buffett describes the process, he says that, yeah, there are a number of people that have responded positively, but not everybody. Some say, no, thank you. I'm not interested in giving half of my billions to charity. And he quipped on that point this way. I've thought about writing a book. Maybe the title would be uh, How you can get by on only 500 million. Well, giving is an important thing, isn't it? It's really important for Christians. And the section from 2 Corinthians that we just heard read is an example. It talks all about giving, as does chapter 8. And in chapter 9, what Paul does is he teaches us about the joy of generosity. There is one thing about money. It's kind of like time. Um, you can't take it with you when you go. And you can only spend it once. So there's lots and lots in the Bible about how we use our resources. And it seems to me that in order to get a hold of what Paul is saying here in 2 Corinthians, it's important really to see kind of a working together of three truths in the Bible. 
Uh, one of them has to do with how we think about our oneness. Another has to do with the poor, and we'll get to the third one in a moment. So, for example, just follow with me. Go back to Genesis chapter 4 and look at verse 9. Cain has just killed Abel. And the Lord comes to him and says, where's your brother? And Cain insolently says, am I my brother's keeper? And the answer, of course, is yes, he is his brother's keeper. Families, members ought to take care of each other. But then move ahead to uh, the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, let, me just, let me just get it for you here. Deuteronomy chapter 15, I believe it is. Yeah, Deuteronomy chapter 15, look at verses 7 and 8. The Lord says to his people Israel, if there are poor around you, pay attention to them. Think about your responsibility to poor people. And that same theme pops up again in Isaiah chapter 58. What kind of worship does the Lord want to see? Worship where the worshipers take account of those that are poor. And when we come to the New Testament, what do we have Jesus say? Well, in Mark chapter 12, verses 20 and 21, he summarizes the law and he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus picks up on this idea of neighborliness in John chapter 15 in his high priestly prayer. Look at verse 20, 20 or 21. He says, Lord, I pray for them. Uh, I pray that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may be one in us that the world may know that you've sent me. And Paul gets after the same idea over in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. He says in verses 25 and 26, look, um, what we're interested in is no division. Because when one member suffers, all the members suffer. And he builds on that then in Ephesians chapter 4, the first six verses. You know how they go. Paul says, how does it start? Uh, let me think about this a minute. Well, I'll look it up. Yeah, he says, I, 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 I am a prisoner of the Lord, I entreat you, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. And then he says, don't do anything out of selfishness or vainglory, but in every situation, think about others better than yourselves. And then he continues, he says, there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all, in all, and through all. Be diligent, then, to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And then over in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 6, we are told, um, make sure that you share with others, because with such gifts God is pleased. So Paul is talking about the joy of generosity in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 15, 
And we want to ask the question, why is he trying to encourage giving? Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 13 and 14. What does he say? He says this in essence, and he says it twice. He says, look, when we're encouraging giving, it's not because uh, we want you to suffer and others to be fat cats. Instead, look at the end of verse 13. What's the word that he uses there? He says, we want there to be, what's the word? Fairness, exactly. And then look at the end of verse 14. What's his interest there? Fairness. Now, interestingly, that word fairness is only used in three places in the New Testament. We just looked at two others. The other place is Colossians chapter 4, verse 1, where Paul is speaking to masters, and he's telling them about their slaves. And he says, treat your slaves with, guess what? Fairness. So the point that Paul is making here is that there is a connectedness with God's people, one to another. That's one thing. That has a bearing on giving. There are some who are rich and some who are poor. That has a bearing on giving. And God is interested in fairness, not that you're going to be deprived, but rather that you can use what you, that with which you've been blessed Give it to some other Christian who's in need, and then when you're in need, they can reciprocate. That's the idea. Does that make sense? So when we come to 2 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul really has three different groups of people in mind. And you'll see that he touches on them. Uh, in this section, first of all, he does a little sales pitch on the importance of giving in the first five verses. And then in verses six down through roughly nine, um, he talks about some prince, uh, Christian principles of giving. And then the rest of the chapter, he shows us the joy that comes from generosity. The three groups of people in which he is interested are, first of all, poor Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. Why are they poor? Well, at least for two reasons. Some of them were persecuted, and another reason is because of famine. And so he is encouraging giving for the sake of these poor Christian Jews in Jerusalem. That's the first group. The second group is those that lived in Macedonia. Christians in Macedonia uh, we're more familiar with the town of Philippi. What do we know about the Macedonians? About 300 years before Paul wrote these words to the Corinthians, uh, Alexander the Great was making his run through Persia and Babylon. And he came back with a reported 73 Hundred tons of silver and gold. A lot of silver and gold. You say, I can't get my head around it. Well, maybe this will help you. Historians tell us that he had to commandeer 20,000 mules and 5,000 camels to bring all that back home. 
Does that help you? There's a lot of money. And um, at that point in history, the Macedonians were the billionaires of the world. But it didn't last very long. Because in a few years, Alexander the Great died. The Romans came in. Uh, they then heavily taxed the Macedonians, and they became poor as church mice. So that's one group. Uh, one group are the suffering Jews in Jerusalem. The other group are the Macedonians, now who are reduced to a level of poverty. And then the third group, of course, are the Corinthians. What do we know about them? Well, Corinth was a rather affluent area. It was also a pagan place. And it was made up of Jews and Gentiles with a church that was a needy church. Needy because they were divided. So what's Paul have to say in his sales pitch? Please look at verses 1 through 5. He tells us, that the Corinthians have done well because they have promised that they're going to give for the poor saints in Jerusalem. It's a good thing. But they haven't come around yet to making the collection. And he's a little nervous. He says, I'm afraid that if I send the brothers uh, to collect the money that you've promised, and if I come, and maybe if some of the Macedonians come with me, then if you haven't done due diligence and given your offering, I will feel humiliated. See it? He says, I'll, I'll feel humiliated. Not to mention the promises that you've made. So that's the beginning of his pitch. And then he goes on and he says, so I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised. People don't always follow through on their promises, do they? Especially when it comes to money. Uh, my parents wanted to teach me the importance of giving. And so when I was a little guy, and I don't remember how old, they would give me a dime at the end of the week and say, now remember, one penny of this belongs to the Lord. I was not the sharpest knife in the drawer back then, and it always bothered me. I thought, how am I ever going to get up to 10 pennies? Uh, and what am I going to do with all this money anyway? And so they taught me the importance of following through on giving to the Lord, and I'm glad that they did. One of the things that they communicated is, you know, there are more important things than money in this world. And the Lord can help you get by on less than what you think you can get by on. Well, so that's kind of his introduction. And now Paul is going to lay out in verses 6 and following some principles of Christian giving. What are they? He says, the point is, whoever sows generously, uh, sparingly, will reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will reap bountifully. He uses a garden illustration. It's a very easy one. You want to have a lot of carrots at the end of the summer? 
you got to put a lot of carrot seeds in the ground. If you don't care about many radishes, don't put many radish seeds in the ground and you won't have a big crop. And that's the way it is with giving. There is this kind of... Um, uh, the, the Lord works things out so that if you're generous, then there's going to be, what's he say? He who sows sparingly reaps sparingly. He who shows, sows bountifully reaps bountifully. It's pretty simple. There's another principle here. Look at the next verse. He says, each person ought to do what he's decided to do in his heart because God loves a cheerful giver. How much you give is between you and the Lord. The Lord's after cheerful giving. Don't be a grumpy giver, in other words. And you might be a grumpy giver if you feel like you're being forced into it. Just on that point... Let's ask ourselves the question, left to yourself, what kind of giver would you be? You'd be stingy. You'd be complaining. Why? Because the heart is deceitful above all things and incurably sick. Your tendency is to hoard things, to make a nice life for yourself. Now, thankfully, we're among Christians, and the Lord has worked in our hearts. So let's think about some giving options that have come to us recently. It wasn't too long ago that we decided we're going to take some money from the missions fund, and we're going to send some people to Turkey to help Uzger and some of his friends because they want to have a studio so they can get online and get the gospel out. And then we said, on kind of short notice, hey, by the way, uh, we think we need $500 for tools. And guess what? Before the team left, the Lord had provided $550 for tools. Isn't that right, David? Yep. And about that same time, or maybe a little after that, somebody said, you know, our Christian brothers and sisters in Ukraine are really suffering what about if we were to fill some of these bins with medical supplies and send them? Now, they're $2,500 a crack. Uh, could we do four? That'll be $10,000. And what did the Lord provide? More than $10,000. Yeah, we sent off the four crates and then had, I think, about $1,000 left over uh, for a generator. And then most recently... Lynn is heading to Uganda to a pastor's con two pastor's conferences, and he says, if you would like to participate, you can give $50 for one pastor to come to the conference. I don't know what the total is yet. But those are examples of people giving to others in need. And frankly, the reason that we're looking at this this Sunday is because Thanksgiving is coming, and tonight we're going to have a Thanksgiving service, and at the Thanksgiving service, we're going to receive our Thanksgiving offering. Any of those monies that are received don't come to Covenant Church. They're going on to the denomination.
to be used for church planting in the United States, having new churches come up, um, helping with cross-cultural ministry in other countries, and the publication of Christian education materials. It's not for us. It's for others that we will never see, and probably most of them we will never know until glory. But that's what we're doing tonight. So that's the reason for this passage. So what does Paul do now? He goes on and he says, now, here's the point. Whoever sows sparingly is going to reap sparingly. And then he says this, and this is really encouraging. Each one must do what he has purposed in his heart because God loves a cheerful giver. And now, listen to this. God is able to make all grace abound to you in that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Those are wonderful words for people who are naturally stingy. Aren't they? God is able to make all grace abound to you. What's the idea of grace? Grace is unmerited favor that we receive through faith in Jesus. God provides all he requires because Jesus has died on the cross to pay for our sins. And out of his victory over sin and death, he now turns around and, as it were, gives to us the spoils of war, his grace, and says, you can become part of my forever family just through faith. I wonder, wherever your spiritual life has taken you, would you say that you've experienced God's grace today? It's the best decision you can ever make. So one principle of giving is, uh, it's like sowing seed. You sow a few seeds, you don't get much back. You sow a lot of seeds, you get much more back. That's the first principle. The second principle is God wants cheerful givers, and he provides, next, grace so that you can be sufficient for every opportunity. So let's just pause there for a moment. What does he say? God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Paul is talking about something about giving here that is much broader than how much money you put in the offering plate today. You see it? He says, you're going to abound in every good work. And that comes to us because of verse 9, as it is written, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. It's just saying another way that God is the one who gives out of his grace so that we can give. I know we've already taken the offering. We're not going to take another one this morning. But you know what? 
I think there are ways that you can give before you walk out the door this morning. Lots of ways. You know how? I think that as we come to the conclusion of the service and you turn to look at those people around you, you can make friendly eye contact, you can smile, you can greet people as if you're interested in them, and you can take an interest and ask, well, how are you today? Those would be expressions of grace. These sinners that are around you in their sinfulness, they don't deserve that kind of kindness, do they? They deserve judgment, but you're going to give them grace because God's been gracious to you. And that list goes on and on, ways that you can give that are not measured in dollar amounts. Isn't that right? So then he goes on and he says, God's made, able to make all grace abound. And then uh, if you would just skip down uh, to verse 11. He says, you'll be enriched in every way to be generous in, you'll be, you'll be enriched in every way to be generous in every way which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. And so now one other connection. Let's just make it down here. Go down and look now at the end of verse 13. He says, and the generosity of your contribution for them, that is these Jews in Jerusalem, and to all others. Let's just pause here and think about the picture that Paul is painting. He is saying, you are connected. You're connected to the believing, suffering Jews in Jerusalem. You're connected to the Christians in Philippi, but there are all others, a bunch of other people to whom you're connected. So let's think about our connections. The Lord has made us one with all other believers worldwide. Isn't that right? So, for example... Are we one with the saints across the road at Glad Tidings? Absolutely. How about uh, people in Turkey who are worshiping with Uzgard today? Are we one with them? Yes. And one with Christians in Ukraine and Russia and Israel and Palestine and China and South Africa and North, North Korea. We have been made one through the blood of Christ. And so there's this connection that we have that extends to our interaction with people all around the globe. It's an amazing thing. It's a mind-boggling kind of thing. So now, what are the indicators that generosity and joy are connected with one another? Well, uh, just look at the number of times that Paul makes some reference to thanksgiving. The first thing he says is back in 7, it's not on thanksgiving, but he says, he says God loves a cheerful giver. It's possible to be cheerful in your giving. And then he goes on and he says, uh, you'll be enriched, uh, verse 11, you'll be rich in every way to be generous in every way which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. 
Imagine what he's thinking about here. I think what he has in mind is the notion that when Paul takes the gift to Jerusalem and these Jerusalem saints look at it, they are going to say something like this. Where did this come from? And Paul will say, well, those saints in Corinth, they were promising for a year they were going to give, and now they have given. And the Jewish Christians will say, they are interested in us? We've never seen them. We don't know them. We have no contact with them. Why would they do this? And then what would Paul say? Probably he would summarize 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. You know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might be made rich. These Corinthian Christians are giving to you Jews because of Jesus. That's the reason. But now we want to ask this other question. If there are repeated references to thanksgiving, you can, see, you can imagine that these Jews in Jerusalem wouldn't be growling about, oh no, now more money. They're not going to be thinking that way. They're going to be joyful in the fact that somebody else is thinking about them. And now we want to ask a larger question, and it's this one. What is the future into which Paul is suggesting we move through this chapter. What will the future look like if what happens in the lives of Corinthians happens in the lives of people in Sinking Spring and in Istanbul and in Seoul? What will happen? There'll be an overflow out of God's grace of resources that are passed to people that are less fortunate and as a result of that, there'll be more and more thanksgiving to God, and the world will see that Christians are one, and they'll be drawn to that kind of living. Yeah, we're talking about downward mobility, but we're also talking about this truth. Bill Gates and Warren Buffett and the 240 other billionaires who have pledged money to the made contributions to the giving pledge, they are not the solution to the world's problem. They can give away all their money, and it won't fix the human heart. But what will fix the human heart is an expression of Christians giving out of the riches the Lord has provided to care for those that are weak and needy among them, and weak and needy on the other side of the world. Maybe I can illustrate it this way. Katie was an 18-year-old, and it seemed from the outside as if she had it all together. She was the homecoming queen. She dated cute boys. She wore cute shoes. As the story goes, she drove a cute sports car. And all that changed when she went on a short-term missions trip to Uganda. It upended her world. 
she was faced with poverty she could never have imagined. And the Lord moved in her heart, and she wanted to do something about it. And so she came home and asked for help and created what's called Amazah Ministries. Amazama, thank you very much. How do you know this story? You want to tell the rest of it? Yeah, Amazama Ministries. Amazama Ministries is a way of contributing to orphans in Uganda. And you can give $300 to take care for one orphan over a year. So help me with the math now. Um, how much would it cost to care for six orphans for a year at $300 a crack? $1,500? thank you. And how much would it cost to care for 60 orphans for a year? 18,000, thank you very much. One more, Sam, you're doing well. How much would it cost to care for 600 orphans? Yeah, that's how much has come in so far to Amazima uh, and Katie's organization, but it doesn't stop there. A little girl named Allie found out about this. And she said, I want to do something to help poor people too. And so she and her grandmother decided that they would try to collect for one orphan by selling lemonade, 25 cents a glass. And they got 100 and 200 and 300 dollars, and then 400, and then 500. And what I think really summarizes um, this whole idea of the joy in giving is a letter that Katie, or that Allie then wrote to Katie. Now, we're putting it up on the screen not because I think you're going to be able to read it, uh, but rather because it gives you the penmanship of a little kid. Um, Allie is eight years old when this starts, and this is what she says. Dear Katie, you are super awesome. I look up and want to be like you when I grow up. I read your book and was inspired and saw God working in your life, so I started raising money. It started from a lemonade stand and 25 cents and ended up raising more than $300. I can't believe you sacrificed so, so, so much. Even college. I'm praying for you. I learned through you that it is your big or small, that if you're big or small, you can still accomplish big things. I was eight when I raised that money. Now I'm 10. Me and my friend Mary are still working to raise more money. If you need anything, just tell us. We will always be by your side. Love, Allie. Isn't that a great letter? And then one caveat. Um, Katie is now married and has adopted 13 kids. How do we make sense out of this joy and generosity? Well, I think Paul says it well there at the end of 2 Corinthians 15, uh, 2 Corinthians 9. He says in verse 15, 
Well, let me go back to chapter 8. You know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, who though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might be made rich. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Lord, bless your word to us, we pray. Help us more and more to understand and experience the joy of generosity. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Our last song is numbered 434. Let's stand together and sing.